two, one. I got with me today Dr. William V. Massey. Uh, he is a researcher and a teacher here at OSU. And he works with how play shapes and helps youth who have experienced trauma. And we'll get right started off with um, what, what do you hope to accomplish with your work? What, do you, what would you like to see that in the future? Well, first, thanks for having me, Tiger. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think in, in terms of thinking about the work that I do and, and what we hope to accomplish, um, you know, I think a broader picture, one of the things that's important to consider is that play is fundamental to childhood. And so, you know, even if we think of the United Nations declaration that play is a fundamental human right for children and that shouldn't be taken away, um, alongside decades and decades of research that show that play is instrumental to how children learn, how they develop, their social development, emotional development, psychological health, physical health. Um, and so really what we try to do is, is think about how we can create environments that make play and physical activity conducive to some of those benefits. Um, you know, particularly you mentioned kids who have experienced trauma and, we're th and when we're thinking about situations where kids have had trauma or adverse experiences, um, environments can be incredibly scary depending on how they're structured and who's in them. And so a lot of the work that I do is focused around school and elementary school and recess in particular. And so if we think of the recess environment as a whole, it's a place where generally we think like, well, that's the most fun of the school day, right? That's the part of school that everybody loves because you get to go out and you get to have fun and play and yeah. do everything else. Uh, at the same time, for a kid who's experiencing trauma and adversity outside of school, um, it can be a terrifying place. So we know that recess is also the number one place that bullying occurs in elementary schools. It's, it's often where fights occur. It's the number one place where exclusion occurs. And so for a kid who um, has a dysregulated stress response system, um, which is characteristic of someone who's going through adversity at home or in the community, um, you know, not knowing what's going to happen in this big space with hundreds of kids, having no structure, having no um, advocate or support system can be incredibly scary. And so big picture, um, what we want to do is promote, um, you know, the idea that physical activity and play is essential for kids. Um, it's probably even more important for kids who are experiencing trauma or adversity or adverse experiences. Um, and so we need to make it accessible in a way that's beneficial for them where they're at. Yeah, and when I've spoken to you in the past, I kind of got the sense that a lot of the foundation of trauma is having a lack of control or control taken away from you, feeling powerless. So I'm curious how you incorporate that into a better recess in the future. Well, so if we think of um, trauma, adverse experiences, there's there's been a lot of work in that realm. And so um, if we kind of back up to like the biological mechanisms and there's, you know, there's a lot of research that's been done on what are called adverse childhood experiences. Such neglect, as? abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, having a parent incarcerated, living with a parent with mental illness. And um, what happens, just, you know, the short of it is that you have a, a dysregulated stress response system, right? And so... What does that mean for the average? Sure. So you have, if you think about our normal um, responses to something, to stress, um, and we think of like our primitive responses, most people think of like the fight or flight, right? 
Um, and so like you see, um, you're out hiking in the McDonald forest and you see the cougar, right? Like the body is going to send off a series of, um, hormones and chemical reactions to say like freeze, right? Like pretend you're a rock, don't do anything or run, get the heck out of here get to safety or fight or fight attack right yeah. and and it would like have to be ready to go so you're going to get flooded with um like adrenaline and all of those different hormones that make your body ready to do that and right? that would be a well-working response system well so that's it's adaptive okay. right if you have to fight a cougar in the forest like you're not going to want to feel pain you're want, you're going to want to be flooded with those hormones so that like you, basically it's a survival instinct, mm-hmm. right? Um, what happens when kids have, or adults, anybody, have a dysregulated stress response system um, is that you've now associated different things with the cougar, right? And so like you might see, like there might be something in an environment that triggers that response where now you get flooded with this stress response system, but it's inappropriate. Such as a more complex thing? Like, like what, would, what would be an example? Um, let's say that you are a child who is abused by their primary caregiver, right? So at home you get physically beaten all the time, um, and that person is tall, just say. And every time you see a tall person, your internal system is telling you abuse is coming, fight or run, fight yeah. or run right? And so you're constantly being flooded with um, this response that there is danger, right? So I might be a kid out at school and, and all of a sudden, like, we have a new teacher out there who's really tall and my biology is telling me, shoot, this person's scary. Like this person is going to cause harm. When in reality, right, a, a, a normal, um, regulated system that is not disrupted by trauma or adverse experiences like you see the tall person you might not think twice about it but for the kid who's experiencing trauma they're gonna they're gonna see cues in the environment that are otherwise unthreatening Mm -hmm. see them as threatening yeah and so um i think i know you asked about control but first to think of there's a biological response that's happening right and so um like on a basic level of our biology and physiology um, there's things that are happening internal to the person that um, that aren't going to be happening in a child that's not being affected by trauma that's going to cause adverse experiences. Um, Do you think having those being triggered all the time creates chronic anxiety and depression? So there's, well, it creates a whole host of things, right? It compromises immune function. It um, increases your risk for being obese by like two or three times. It increases your risk for stroke. It increases your risk for cardiovascular disease. It increases your risk for mental health issues, right? So across the biopsychosocial spectrum, um, individuals who have experienced trauma in their childhood particularly are at a multitude of risk for all of those things. Um, and a lot of it is because of that biological system and how it's functioning and how it's changing you know, our hormonal system, our immune system, our responses um, to different events, how cortisol is always being flooded through the system. That's, that's changing a whole cascade of health issues. And so we know that um, you know, individuals who've experienced trauma in their childhood are at 
greater risk throughout the entire lifespan, not just in their childhood, mm-hmm. for a variety of physical, psychosocial. And so, where you, you fit into this is you believe play is a is a core component, not the entire picture between therapy and all these different components, but uh, a vital component in fixing that, solving that, healing that, or what's well. <laughs> let's not use fixing. Um, because, you know, I, I think then you kind of get into language of like this person's broken and they need to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Think fundamentally play is something that every child needs to develop in a healthy way. Um, if you look at school-based interventions, so if we just talk about school in general, um, there's there's two main types of interventions that schools kind of have that are more like trauma-focused, trauma-sensitive, right? One is addressing... Um, essentially the like the disrupted regulation system of a child so if you think of like um, a lot of kids who experience trauma are diagnosed as kids with adhd behaviorally the symptoms might look similar Um, the underlying biology and mechanisms are are different in terms of what's happening but you know, the kid who's affected by trauma can look very much like a kid with ADHD in the classroom, right? So they're dysregulated. They, they have poor behavioral and emotional control. They, they don't sit still. They don't follow tasks and assignments very well. They disrupt others. And so um, one piece of, of helping with that is creating systems and structures that are very predictable. Um, so that kids can have an opportunity to regulate their behavior in a predictable structure. I promise I'm getting to the play piece. You're good. <laughs> Another part is is interventions aimed at um, helping with the disrupted attachment. And so um, oftentimes trauma is interpersonal. And so that kind of goes back to your original point of there's a lack of control, right? If I'm a child who's being abused by an adult, control autonomy is being taken away from me right um and but within that there's a disrupted attachment and so we know from a child development perspective that one of the most important things for children to have healthy development throughout the lifespan is that they have a secure attachment with primary caregiver when that's disrupted say the primary caregiver is um like there's neglect or there's abuse or there's there's maybe the primary caregiver is depressed and they have an inability to connect. You know, maybe there's circumstances going on where, um, you know, they don't have the capacity per se to really attend to the developing child and it's the attachment is disrupted. Um, there's, there's a need for that. And so within a school system, you can see teachers as um, essentially a developmental asset, right? And there's research that has shown that um, a strong teacher-student relationship can act as a buffer um, to build resiliency for kids who are experiencing adversity, trauma outside of school. And so when you think about play, right, those things can be fundamental to it. And so, you know, if we think about physical education classes or we think about recess or we think about youth sport or we think about after school and community programs, um, you know, there, there can be an environment that is structured and predictable and allows kids to play in a way um, that can help facilitate their growth, you know, or there can be situations where it's like chaos and you don't know what to expect. Um, if we think about the attachment piece, um, play is an incredibly powerful way for adults and children to bond. Um, and so even if you think primary attachment within the home, you know, one of the, 
one powerful thing that parents can do is like get on the floor and play with their kids, right? It helps build attachment. Um, teachers can do the same thing, right? Teachers can go out and play with their students. It helps build attachment and relationship that allows the student to see that adult as a safe and caring person whom they can then trust and depend on, um, which is essentially the building blocks of growth in terms of social and emotional development. Um, a youth sport coach can provide that same level of support, right? Of, of connecting with children through play to provide that building block of growth and development. And so it's important for any child to have things like structure and predictability and routines and adults who they trust and are attached to. Um, it becomes fundamentally vital to kids who are experiencing adversity and trauma at home because those are kind of some of the very things that are being disrupted. And so um, I am a believer that we can we can use play, sport, physical activity, movement as a medium for those things that are essentially necessary for any kid, but yeah. vital for kids who to, are in To rebuild that broken attachment system. Well, I wouldn't even say rebuild rebuild it because one, I don't think the science is there, and, and two, um, I don't think we can ever substitute for like the need for a primary attachment. But we know that things like healthy relationships, healthy relationships with caring adults are vital for kids. Um, and if we know that a kid has attachment disruption, it's even more important for them to be able to build trusting relationships. Um, I think play is a great way to do it. Yeah, to go back to the cause of it, why do you think people abuse kids? What, what do you think is at the core of what starts this whole cycle? Um, I think that's probably outside of my area of expertise. Yeah. Um, you know, there's certainly um, other people who would be better to ask. And, you know, if we think about societal patterns, um, I think we get into a whole host of structural and systemic issues. I don't think that anybody sets out and says that like, like, oh, I'm gonna abuse a kid, yeah. um, particularly a parent. Um, but you know, if you take um, just the intersection of a host of societal factors that um, you know isolate certain groups of people. Um, dehumanize certain groups of people, systematically impoverish certain groups of people, consistently provide poor education to certain groups of people, um, consistently provide poor access to healthcare resources, food, nutrition. Um, and when you're living in a community that's riddled with community violence and it's all you grow up seeing, right? So if we start to look at the intersection of those things, a lot of times we probably find higher incidences of abuse across the spectrum. Yeah. Um, and so not, um, not an easy or straightforward topic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think by and large, if we think of parents in general, like parents are generally doing the best they have in the situation they're in. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they are systematically more discriminated against um, and have barriers and things going on that might lead to difficult outcomes for children. Yeah, and then do you think if someone is abused as a kid that that cycle goes up and they're more likely to be an abuser? Um, and if so, how could they, they cut that cycle off? 
Yeah, again, I would say not my area I'm going to ask you some questions outside a little bit. <laughs> um, uh, and not something that I don't know that I'm qualified to comment on. Okay. All right. Um, so I guess I'm curious. Well, that kind of that kind of throws me for a loop. Um, hmm. I guess how would you, if, if you could change the way that recesses are structured in the future, what are some some changes that you think would would help kids have more structure? But you can't overstructure because then again they feel like they're being controlled or they have a loss of control. So it's like a balance they almost have to strike. Yeah. Well, when we're talking specifically about recess, and I would say a lot of like play domains. Um, that are more structured, organized activities, certainly, is that there's there's this tension between, especially at recess, well, it's like the only time that their like, day isn't structured and now you're going to structure that. There's a difference between structuring the environment and structuring the kids. And so you can take a playground and you can structure the environment, right? You can say, like, this is where the jungle gym is. And, like, you know, so over here, like you can do like monkey bears and slides and whatever else, right? And like over here, like this is like the grassy area and we're gonna set up a, a soccer field. And so like this is the area where if you wanna play soccer, you play soccer. And like over here, this is the area. If you wanna play football, you play football. Yeah. And here, like here's all the jump ropes and the hula hoops. So if you wanna play with those, like you do that here. So you can create a system where the environment is structured, where it's really clear of like, these are the things you can do here. And then these are the things you can do here, and these are the things you can do here. Um, so that in no way is is controlling what kids do or taking away their choice. It's just saying, here's some options. Here's the places you can do them. And so by structuring the environment, you can create a sense of predictability with kids, right? And they can they can even you can even think like, okay, so you're you have recess at 11 and it's 10, right? If I'm a third grader, like I'm probably starting to think about what I'm going to do at recess. And so if I know like there's going to be a football game here and a soccer game here and jump ropes here and like, and these kids generally do this. So I know they're probably going to be over there and these kids probably do that and they're going to be over there. I can start to plan and structure and have a sense of control and predictability in terms of what I'm going to do when I get out there, right? Yeah. It's comforting to know mm -hmm. um, that I understand the environment before I get into it. So that's one um, small then, thing we can do. Yeah, I assume bullying kind of throws a whole wrench in that whole, in, entire thing if someone follows you to whatever activity you do to bully you. Um, I'm curious, so if you don't have an outlet for play because someone's bullying you, you're even experiencing trauma when you're supposed to be just living. Sure. Well, let's talk about a few other things we can do in terms of a recess environment. Cool. Um, another thing that that we um, see all the time in our data and certainly promote, but I understand that there's a tension, is that you see more positive outcomes when teachers are fully engaged in recess. Um, and so there's there's a sense that like the adults at recess are there to to supervise um, and monitor, right? So monitor behavior and supervise, which basically translates to like standing overseeing very authoritatively. Um, we see that kids are more engaged in play, that kids are more physically active, um, and that there's overall less conflict on the playground when the adults on the playground engage rather than supervise. And so by engage, like they hop in the game. Why do you think kids want to play with adults? Let me finish. Okay. Let me let me <laughs> keep going. Okay. <laughs> um, so when teachers play, when they jump in the game, and maybe not even jump in the game, but they facilitate the play, right? So maybe they're um, they're a lot of times, especially in different parts of the country, you might get like a fifteen minute recess, 
And so like, it's going to take seven, eight minutes for like the kids to get out, get all the stuff out, get something set up and get the game going. So one way teachers can engage is like to facilitate that process, right? Like help get the field set up while the kids are picking the team or whatever. So the play can start immediately. Um, and so one of the things we see just naturally without like, um, any type of specific intervention is that when teachers are playing alongside kids, um, that they're part of the game, that things like bullying conflict, they just inherently decrease. Um, and you know, I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that, but I think it also, you know, it, it eliminates, a um, it eliminates a environment that's built on hierarchies where like, some people have all of the power and others don't. And so a lot of times what you see on playgrounds, um, like athletic boys are at the top of the chain at recess. So they take like all the stuff and hog all the space. Um, and then everyone else is just kind of like pushed out. Um, and so you have kind of already like a built hierarchy of like who has the most power at recess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then if you're a kid who tries to like cross that, like, it's very easy to see where bullying, fighting, conflict can occur. Um, when you have adults kind of spaced out playing alongside the kids, it's, it tends to help flatten those hierarchies because it doesn't allow any one group to get like a predominant amount of space, resources, and power. Yeah. Um, but hierarchies exist in the world. They do. Would you think, are you, are you more of a proponent of keeping scoring games or the new newer method of where they don't keep scoring games and there's no winning? Um, it. It depends on the developmental level and the purpose. And so, like, um, I coach youth sports. I like to win. Yeah. Like, it's just a reality. <laughs> um, like, keep score. You're trying to win. Even if you pretend that, like, winning doesn't matter, like, the kids, if you're keeping score, they understand. Um, but there's a developmental trajectory to that. And so, you know, kids at, six, seven, eight, nine years of age, like they generally don't care about winning. And uh, I'm sure people would argue with me on that. But what they do is they they adopt the values of the adults, right? And so like if we move this into a sports setting, um, if the coach is, is constantly like hammering on like how important it is to win, mm-hmm. you'll see kids like eight, nine years old, they'll lose and they'll cry after the game because they're upset that they didn't win. If the coach is focused on having fun, developing your skill, working together as a team, um, like being resilient, you know, not shutting down when things get hard. Like you'll see kids, like, you you know, they might lose, but like are happy and having fun after the game. Um, Another thing you see at that age is like, you know, the team might have lost like 20 to three, but like if, if I'm a kid and I'm eight and I went like three for three with three hits, like I'm pumped after the game because like, like I did well, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a developmental trajectory of like, of effort and individual success. And so um, like on a broader scheme, I don't know how tied back this is into like the whole recess realm that we were talking about. We're just having fun with it. But you know, if, if we think about development and individual development from a psychosocial standpoint through sport and games and through a, um, like a technical and talent perspective, like those are important things. And we shouldn't just say like, oh, it doesn't matter. Like those things do matter. Um, At the end of the day, you know, at eight, nine, 10 years old, like winning really doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you win the soccer game at recess. Like there are no, like 
Like no there's no life consequences. Mm-hmm. It matters that you learn how to win and learn how to lose because I think those are important skills that we have. Um, you know, so going back to your question, like, yeah, like keep score. It's fine. Don't define yourself by it or don't, don't, don't project your values onto the kids. Yeah. Um, you know, and if like it, but it's important for kids to learn, um, to how lose. to win and how to lose, not even just how to lose, but like how to win, mm-hmm. you know, like you don't want a kid who every time they win at something, they like rub it in somebody's face. Like one, like nobody wants to play with that kid. Um, and then like eventually like nobody wants to be friends with that kid and like nobody wants to hire that kid. Yeah. So you want to teach them the right way to do both. Mm-hmm. Um, inherent in that is keeping score and yeah. knowing what the outcome is. And so what would be the perfect outcome? If you, if you were to take two adults, one of them had never played youth sports when they're, or they, they had a, a coach who instilled poor values in them and you had someone who had just the best sports coach, what would their lives look like? Um, it depends on so many more things than the coach. I would say that the biggest determining factor of what their lives look like is like one of them probably stops playing sports at 11 and the other one maybe plays, you know, until their abilities allow them to, or develops it as a lifelong habit. Um, you know, attrition rates for youth sport are pretty high and they skyrocket around like 11, 12 years old. Um, it's the point at which developmentally most kids distinguish between ability and effort, who's good and who's not good. Um, it's also, you know, where a lot of adults probably project their values even more, right? And like winning becomes the sole focus. Um, and, you know, the the coach prioritizes winning over player and person development. Well, if you're not the best on the team, like you're a lot of those kids are going to quit because they're having a miserable experience because they're only being rewarded um, and are punished based on like if they're producing a result. Um, and and certainly we see that starts in it at all levels of sport, um, but. You know, if you look at the psychological consequences to you're only good to me so long as, like, you know, you, you help me, win. you help us win. And, yeah. like, the message that sends to anyone, let alone a 10 or 11 year old, mm-hmm. um, can be just a devastating message. Yeah. And do you think that message is the same across sports? Or what if you had a kid who's swimming and you maybe want them to progress past 11, but then you have another kid who's playing football? Would you really want them to keep playing football into high school with the risk of TBI being what it was? Um, I think those are just choices that parents and families are going to make. I mean, you don't think, you don't think there should be any rules around kids playing contact sports where they could be essentially like messing up the rest of their life just because of playing a game. Um, I think that context is important. Um, you know, like my kid doesn't play football, plays flag football. Um, but like if we're getting into taking us into whole new terrain here, I mean, Tiger. You're, you're signing like... your kid up to be a gladiator, kind of, <laughs> you know? Like, if you're really pushing and supporting your kid to be, like, a, a varsity football player and stuff like that, not that it's wrong, but I'm curious how much of the kid's own volition comes into being like, I really want this, or just Well, I think like that's my... the heart of the question, right? Are you pushing your kid into doing something that you want them to do, or are you supporting them in doing something that they want to do, mm-hmm. right? And so, like... Um, and I think oftentimes the former, where if you're if you're pushing a kid into doing something that you want them to do, like oftentimes the outcomes uh, aren't all that good, right? Or eventually it catches up. Um, 
because the parent or the adult is more invested than the kid. Um, and that just sets things up for problems, right? Yeah. Um, whereas if you're, like, if you're supporting your kid and wanting to do something, it has nothing to do with you and you're supporting what they want. And so when you get to the point where they maybe say, like, I don't want to do this anymore, right? There's no investment to where you're like, well, I've like poured my whole life into this. Like you're going to keep doing it even though you don't want to. You see that all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Where parents get their kids into elite, you know, sports at a young age and they invest in personal coaches and equipment and tournaments and travel and all this. And then the kid hits 14 and doesn't want to do it anymore. And the parent says, but I've, I've dumped all of this into it. Mm -hmm. Well, at what point was it about you and what point was it about the kid? And so I think your answer is inherent in your question. Mm. Like it depends. Are you pushing the kid into it? Are you supporting what they want to do? Yeah. But I'm I'm more, I guess you can't get rid of the game, but I'm curious if society should keep it an option for kids to, I mean, a high schooler, would you want your 15 year old kid to be getting concussions? You think you're talking specifically about tackle football? Yeah, per, per se. I'm sure there's others. <laughs> I mean, doesn't soccer have one of the highest concussion rates too? Um, soccer has a pretty high concussion rate. And I think ice hockey has a fairly decent one. I think cheerleading has the highest wow. of any. Um, so like if we want to, you know, if we want to have that conversation, a lot of times, like we don't necessarily think of the the sports is inherently with the highest concussion rates or the highest injury rates is the most dangerous. Um, I think that certainly um, football, tackle football has its issues. Um, I guess where I'm coming from is a kid doesn't isn't super future oriented. They're not thinking, oh man, I might start developing Alzheimer's at 40 if I decide to do this. But you're being like, oh, they want to do it, I'll support them. Would it be better to be like, maybe like, hey, when you're 40, you'd be really thankful for not being quite as happy right now. Well, I'll go back to what I said earlier. You know, parents have to make their own decisions. Yeah. And, you know, like for my family, um, our current 10-year-old can play flag football. He can't play tackle football. He's asked maybe five, six times um, to play tackle football, and the answer's no. And, like, we tell him why, and, Mm -hmm. like, you know, he's 10, but we like educate him on the risk of concussions. And, and like we watch football, um, watch college football, you know, Saturdays in the fall. And, um, but you know, every once in a while when somebody really gets creamed or they need like an ambulance to come get him, like he's actually the one to point out, like maybe, you know, like (laughs) why are they playing if they know it's bad for their brains is like something he says, because clearly like we've said that over and over to him. Um, you know, so it's parents have to make their decisions. I don't think there's a right or a wrong decision. I think that, you know, it's um, football has done a lot of good things for a lot of people. And you talk to, I mean, you talk to NFL players who might have brain damage and some of her like severe, just like nagging injuries throughout their career. And a lot of them say they'll do it all over again if they had a choice knowing what they know now. So I think, I don't think you can just across the board say like, this sport comes with the risk of injury and so we shouldn't should never do it um because you know i think that it's as a sport like any sport it's done i'm sure it's done a lot of good and a lot of bad and you just have to make your decision on how you're going to do it i like it so we've danced around it quite a bit and you kind of brushed on at the beginning but i'm curious uh, how does play affect and shape the lives of youth um, I would say that, I mean, I would almost say like, how doesn't it, right? Because it's, um, like that's, it's our base for so many things. Um, you know, kids intrinsically, 
and um, just inherently love to play, right? And so, like, if you think about yourself, right, and, like, the friends you had growing up, like, what do you remember about them? Yeah, it tended to be during times of play. Okay, so it's how we create social relationships, right? It's how, um, it's often how we maintain those social relationships. If you think about just like being in the world, right? And however we want to define success, often on some level it's a function of the relationships we have and the, and the connections that we make. And um, most often I would argue that those are made through some form of play. Yeah. I like that. And so, and that, so if a kid's experienced trauma and is there, is there an integration period where they, they just don't want to play and how would, you know, how would you gently encourage them to? I think it can be a challenge. Um, you know, trauma can manifest itself in all sorts of different ways. I think one of those is one in which people pull back and withdraw from things. Um, and so particularly for young kids, I think it's really important to to continue to give them an outlet in a place that they can feel um, is safe and supportive to be who they are, right? I think like when we talk about kids playing, like that's who they are, that's what they were meant to do. Um, when we have situations where, you know, like maybe some of that has been taken away um, or maybe some of that just like innate love for movement and play has been taken away, then it's um, it does as well to think about how can we create scenarios to give some of that back. Yeah. And so if you were to speak to a youth who's experienced trauma right now, just, I mean, it's obviously super generalized, but what, what advice would you have for them? Um, I don't know that I would give any broad-based advice because I think everybody's situation and scenario is different, mm-hmm. um, you know, but at the end of the day, I think um, all of us need to be surrounded by people that we can trust and people that will love and support us regardless of our circumstances. Um, you know, my background in training is one that just lends itself to studying that through the idea of sport and play and that we can build those relationships there. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, to your first question, if I can do my small part in helping there, um, I'll try to. But, you know, I, I, I would I would venture away from broad generalizations or advices like to the masses because everyone's situation is different and, and we don't know what that is. Yeah, but if, if you're speaking to someone who was abused in some way and you'd be like, all right, break the stigma, go find therapy or go find physical therapy or whatever could, you know, like what, what would be a start of a path that if they're helpless and they don't have any, any parents or teachers who will kind of help them? It can. I think it just it depends. It depends on their scenario. It depends on um, what's happened. It depends on how they're coping with it. It depends on their biology and their environment and the access to resources they have. Um, you know, one of the things there's, if we look at like the literature um, on trauma-based treatments, you know, there's there's a range of things that show um, some level of effectiveness at kind of a broad level, but when you get down into the the nitty-gritty there's a lot of it where especially when you're working one-on-one with a youth who's experienced trauma um, or has PTSD you know it's a like you have to find what's going to work best for that person and and there's no broad guidelines that work best for everyone I like that that's a whole lot 
Yeah. Um, cool. It seems like every time I've ended these interviews, not that this is necessarily the end, but if you want to start thinking about um, if I've missed anything that you want to have said or talk about, um, feel free to interject it at any time. But I'm curious, is there a difference between chronic and acute? Like if you were just beaten once or, or somehow had one traumatic experience rather than your parents were impoverished and you had scarcity or food uh, insecurity and stuff, do those manifest in different ways? Or? Um, there's a, there's a difference in timing. Um, the younger you are when, you know, trauma or adverse childhood experiences is a lot of how the literature defines it. So the earlier you are when it happens, um, essentially the bigger risk you have. And so, you know, if you experience, um, trauma at two versus 24, like you're much more likely to recover from it at 24 than you are at two. Um, Does that go all the way back to birth? Like, do you think, just I've heard a couple of things about it, like circumcision is just the first trauma any male would experience? Um, <laughs> I don't know anything about circumcision, nor do I care to discuss that. But that's that. all the way at the very um, back. That's a, tra a physical trauma they'd experience day one, you know? There's data that shows that um, essentially when you're um, still like in the womb, um, I can't think of the technical term that we want there, but basically like utero. Um, in utero and the the mother is experiencing stress or trauma that can manifest to the child. So, so it can like, go all the way back. Um, it can go back to before you were born. There's actually some really fascinating research that came out of the University of Wisconsin a few years ago that shows a genetic link um, between like the trauma of your parents and how that like changes their um, essentially their like biology and genetics and how that is then passed down generations. And so, um, you know, there's, there's research that look at, you know, epigenetics and how trauma can basically change how the environment activates your genes. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's people showing that, that essentially, um, those effects can carry down from your parents. Um, so, you know, when we think about like generational trauma, um, there's data to support the idea that it is kind of almost genetically handed down in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure there's some positive benefits for that too. I'm it, it, completely going to misquote here, but something like if the, the parent experienced a famine between the ages of like six and 12, their kids um, are less likely to be obese and things like that. They just develop like there's a certain level of stress that's beneficial. You wouldn't want your kids to experience no stress in life, but too much stress becomes trauma. Um, so, you know, I think the whole, the whole idea that like, like tra tr let's use trauma or adversity, like is good and can make you stronger. Um, I would just try to try to get like far away from that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Like we all, there's, there's a beneficial level of stress, right. And there's things that, um, you know, trials and tribulations that make you stronger as a person. That should be fundamentally separated from the idea that like you need to go through hardship as a child. But right? some sort, like like you can take a sauna and it, the, the heat stress causes uh, heat shock proteins or same with cold, like um, cryotherapy and ice baths and same with intermittent fasting. Like there's different stresses you can put on the body that physiologically help you. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. But like, I mean, obviously overboard, you know, you can die in a sauna. Sure. So again, like, would you want your three-month-old child to fast for health benefits? Probably not, right? Because they have a developing system. Yeah. Um, 
adverse experiences in childhood are not a good thing. We should never think of them as a good thing. Up until like, what age? No child needs to experience neglect. No child needs to experience abuse. No child needs to experience famine. Um, yes, growth can happen from those. But they need to experience exercise, and that's a stressor. So again, we're that's a huge delineation between like something that is like a, a stressor, like and a trauma, and a trauma. Yeah. Right. And so, like, if we think about things that cause trauma, abuse, neglect, um, you know, not being taken care of, having lack of attachment to a primary caregiver, having someone in your family die, having someone in your family go to prison, being raised by someone with mental illness who can't always care for you. Um, nobody needs to go through that. Nobody should go through that. And nobody's better for it. Um, people might develop strengths because of their experiences, but that's not to say that those made them stronger. And in fact, all of the data we have would just strongly show that the more of those experiences you have, the more likely you are to experience a whole host of other risk factors. Absolutely. Um, well, so I'm looking at this as a spectrum where at the far end is trauma and at the far end of the left side is inactivity completely. You never experience any sort of light things and you want to find somewhere in the middle. Like if you had a kid who never got out and exercised and just ate plenty all day, like they never had any sort of stressors on the body, they also wouldn't. Um, they'd grow up to be obese and all these, you know. Yeah, well, if you want to, I mean, like again, I would, I would separate those as I wouldn't think of that as a continuum. I would think of those as two continuums, okay. right? Like the idea of trauma and adversity in childhood is incredibly different than the idea of daily stressors, right? Like everybody needs to fail, mm -hmm. right? Like if you, let's say you fail a test, like that's stressful. You learn from it, you grow. Like there's no path to success that does not lead through failure. Um, and failure obviously comes with some sort of stress, right? And so, and we need, we need stress to function in our lives. Like, yeah. you know, if there's not um, enough stress, it's preventative to like doing things like getting a job or going to school yeah. or, you know, playing sports. All of those things come with stress, but those are fundamentally different than um, what we would think about in terms of adversity and trauma, because what we're, what we're fundamentally talking about there is, uh, is our basic needs, right? And are they getting met, right? And so neglect happens when like our basic need for um, appropriate care is not there, right? When we don't have the food we need or the shelter we need or the love and companionship that we need. Um, you know, abuse happens, it's a violation of our need for safety, whether it's physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, right? It's taking a fundamental need of safety and trust and security away. Um, disruptive caregiving is taking away a fundamental need to have a, a primary caregiver that we're bonded with, that we're connected with, um, that we know will keep us safe. Um, those are different fundamentally than stress, right? Like we don't have like a fundamental basic need to um, like pass every test we take or to like sit on the couch if we want to be lazy. Um, so that's, that's where I would separate. Like those are okay. different continuums. And I think we run a really big risk of doing fundamental damage when we conflate those. And when we say that, like, you know, adversity is adversity and you should get some of it, mm -hmm. right? And then you get into like, um, let's go youth sport, right? And you have coaches that are very abusive because it's good for kids, right? It'll make them tougher and stronger. Like, it won't. 
like yelling and screaming and shaming and like verbally and or physically abusing a kid in sport to like make them tougher or more resilient like it's not going to work mm-hmm. it's going to do harm and so i think when we when we look at those as one continuum yeah. we very much run the risk of stepping into that harm zone. Okay, so if you uh, separate them as continuums, I'm curious, how do you develop a growth mindset in a kid so when they experience failure, they don't see it as something bad? Because I'm sure if a, if a coach yells when they fail, that immediately shuts it off and says, this is a bad thing, I should view it as a bad thing. Sure, it's, it's developmental. It has a lot to do with um, parenting. It has a lot to do with, I mean, certainly some kids are gonna have different dispositions, but the environments that we're in and the environments that um, children are in are gonna have a huge impact on the growth versus a fixed mindset. So like one thing, if you think about kids, um, I say this with all the best of intentions, kids are easy to manipulate, right? (laughs) Like one way or the other. Yeah. and so like you could take uh, take like a three-year-old, right? And you maybe they saw like a basketball on TV and, and they shoot like a paper towel wad in the trash. And they're like, oh, I made it, yeah, right? Like, and you could be like, like, no, you idiot, you did it wrong. Like, that was terrible, that was stupid, right? And so now like that kid is gonna start to get into, like, and that's to say like you repeat that pattern all the time, right? So that kid's gonna, start to see like everything they do as a failure, fear failure, be afraid to try things, you know, be afraid of the consequences of things because you've socialized them to do so, right? Um, Let's say like same kid, like you like check out of the corner of your eye, like they throw the paper towel at the basket, miss by five feet. And you're like, oh man, buddy, like that was awesome. Like you made basketball and a hoop yourself. Like, um, you know, great initiative, like, grab it, try it again, see if you get closer this time, right? So now the kid's going to start to learn that taking chances uh, is a good thing. There's no reason not to. Like, mm-hmm. why not take a chance to get closer the next time? Um, and so, like, kind of an extreme example. But, like, if you repeated those patterns across time, those kids would start to internalize that, right? And so if you think about, you know, if we go to a sport. Um, like the coach has a huge, huge impact on the environment and kind of the motivational environment and how kids view success and failure, because what you reward as a coach, particularly for young kids, right? So we're talking like 10 and under, they're going to like 85% of them are going to adopt to that, right? So as a coach, let's just say, um, and I have, so we'll go like broadly, we'll go like vaguely from real life examples, um, but we'll generalize them a little bit. Um, let's just say like you make the focus of like playing together as a team, supporting your teammates and doing your best. Right. And like, that's all you focus on. That's all you reinforce. Um, somebody makes a mistake, you encourage them to focus on the next one. Right. Kids are going to adopt that. Um, and it's not going to matter if they win or lose, like that's not going to define who they are. It's not going to define their season. Right. They're going to think about, you know, did I have fun? Um, did I make new friends? Did I get better? If you look at the literature, right, and you ask kids, like young kids, why they play sports, like that's why they play. They, like the number one reason is almost always to have fun. And then it's, and then it's to um, like connect with their friends or teammates. It's to get better. Um, you know, like winning is normally like 
13th, 14th, 15th on the list, right? It's not what they think about. But if you as the coach, the person that they look up to, it's all you talk about, that's all you care about. We got to win. It doesn't matter like how, you know, and then you get into scenarios where like um, you're benching nine-year-olds because they made a mistake and like they're costing you the win, right? Which is great Happens. for their self-esteem, being very sarcastic there yeah. for anyone in your listening audience. Yeah. <laughs> but it happens all the time. See it all the time. Coach like screams and yells at a kid for making a mistake. Um, or you get like I coach baseball, so you get the coach yelling like throw strikes. It's like yeah, he's trying. Mm-hmm. Like he knows he's not supposed to throw balls. Yeah. Um, but then the kids are going to adopt that, right? They're going to the only goal they're going to focus on is winning. And when it doesn't happen, they're going to be devastated because it's what the person in charge cares about. Now, when you get to like 14, 15 year olds, like at the end of the day, you're gonna, they're going to want to win developmentally that's where they're at and you but you can still focus the environment to say okay well what are the things that are important to winning right like we're not going to win if we're not focused and we're not going to win if we don't make the routine plays and we're not going to win if we don't support each other and so you can still put the focus on those things and you can use those things as drivers as how you measure success because they set you up to win anyway Um, but at the end of the day like you'll have kids who will be disappointed if they don't win Um, but you're not creating that win at all cost win no matter what it's the only thing that matters um you know if you think of sports in general um like most people will lose most of the time like that's a reality at the end of the season whatever your sport is everybody's a loser but one team and so like if you make that your only benchmark you're setting people up for failure so back to like how do you create a growth or a fixed mindset like focus on the things that are controllable um, you know, focus on getting kids to understand that, okay, like that team, maybe that team beat us and they were better than us today, but that doesn't mean if we don't do like X, Y, and Z over the next three months that we can't be better than them, right? That continues the idea that we can grow, we can improve, we can get better versus like, well, we lost and so it doesn't matter anymore. They're better than us. There's no point in trying anymore. Yeah, I like that. So what I'm kind of getting from this is that Play is and play and sport are a good time to instill morals into a kid because they're malleable at that age, and f- growth fixed mindset and things like winning losing uh, are, are possibilities. What's the, what are some some of the main morals that you push if you get a group of, of youth? Yeah, so to your point, right? Sport often does create a sense of like we'll call it a moral compass. Hopefully, like parents are doing that more than the sport setting, but sport creates values. We'll say that, right? And But those can be good or bad, right? We talk about, like, you know, sport can create character. Like, that's a thing people say, right? Like, it can. Bad character and good character, right? So, like, sport can create little monsters um, that are, you know, just difficult and no, no other kids society. want to play with them yeah. <laughs> um, or can instill valuable life lessons and so you know like for me personally it's um i always keep it pretty simple in practice it's um it's support your teammates like number one um like look for the positive one of the things like when talking to younger kids and coaching and it's like okay like who here has never made a mistake in sport like who's here is perfect right raise your hand and like inevitably like the one jokester will raise his hand and like oh really never (laughs) Um, but like nobody can say that and so it's like all right so like when your teammate messes up like they will because all of you will 
Like, how would you want to be treated if you made a mistake? Would it be helpful if we all yelled and screamed at you and told you that you sucked? Or would it be helpful if we said, like, like, hey, let's get the next one. I got your back, right? And so we create a culture around, like, how to support your teammates. So it's one thing to say, like, be a good teammate. It's another thing to, to lay out definitively what that means for them and then how we need to act on a daily basis, right? So I think, like, that's one. Another one is... Um, you know, like essentially like giving your best that you have that day. And so like, again, it's, it's like, be here, be present. Don't be talking to people in the stands because you're not giving your team your best right now, um, which gets into like important skills of like being focused on the task at hand, um, you know, supporting those who are around you. So, um, you know, really for me, it's, it's a lot of social skill development, um, how to be a part of a group, how to be a part of a team, how to play a role on a team. It might not always be the role that you want. Like not everybody can be, play the position they want. And so, um, but I think it's important when you're coaching kids, like you talk to them about that, right? Like, um, as coaches, like we're going to decide if, you know, who's going to help fill what role and and certainly you can have some say in that and what you want and we'll rotate things around and give people chances but like part of learning how to be on a team is maybe like doing the thing you don't want to do as much Uh, and i think that's a valuable life skill because if we have a bunch of people who like either like i do what i want or i do nothing Mm -hmm. well like that's not a functional attitude for the real world give them a little perspective that it's not forever um so it sounds a lot like you you reward positive behavior and you don't uh, Dean Center, like, like you don't punish bad behavior. So I'm curious, how do you deal with? So you set out uh, a good layout of here are our morals, here's what we expect, and and a kid's purposely just throwing a wrench in the whole thing. Um, how do you how do you help facilitate that to be a better situation? Yeah, I think like punishment is um, like generally not all that effective. Holding people accountable to the standard you set is right. So there's a difference between like punishing someone and holding them accountable to a standard. Right. And so like if we're talking youth sport, that's what we're talking about, right? (laughs) Then a lot of times like what's inappropriate is to punish a kid for making a bad play. Okay. So like kid misses a shot in basketball, kid strikes out in baseball. Um, like and they get yelled at or benched or whatever else, right? Like so to me that's completely inappropriate. One, because um like it goes back to the idea of you're just promoting like a fixed mindset, right? That like you're as good as you are, you're as good as you are. And, and then your only value is like what you can produce. Um, so, you know, to me, that's where you really, as a coach need to be technical in terms of like, okay, like you missed because you did this, this, and this. So next, this is what we need to work on. Um, but also encouraging, like you, you can get better. We will do better. Um, in terms of behavior, you know, proactively, so you set up what your expectations are, right? And so, like, I coach baseball. My kids know you argue with an umpire, you're on the bench. You say something negative to your teammate, you're on the bench. Um, it's not punishment. It's we've we've proactively laid out, here's the expectation. If you fail to meet the expectation, here's what the consequences are. And you're consistent with it. Just because your best player argues with the umpire, you can't give yeah. him an exception. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that. And that's always, that's when kids figure it out, um, is when 
uh, you know, and it happens, right? right? It, usually it's not an umpire. Usually it's like, um, like they say something negative to a teammate, right? And it's like, or like they're um, talking to someone in the stands during a game. And it's like, hey, you're out. Have a seat, right? Mm-hmm. And then you make it really clear as to why. I think it's important that everybody knows, right? Like, not you're because out. Because I said so. Because, like, you did this, yeah. right? And then everybody goes like, ooh. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. um, and and I think you do have to make that example sometimes with your best player um, to say like, you're no different than anyone. And like at the end of the day, if we lose the game because you were on the bench because you were being rude to a teammate, like we'll take that because because you learning how to be a good teammate is more important than winning a game at 11 years old. So to take this one step further, um, maybe kids who have experienced trauma come and they are preventing everyone else from playing effectively, like they're just walking around the field or throwing stuff down, um, and you can't exclude them from the game because that just makes things worse. How do you properly incorporate them in? Yeah, so um, I think a lot of times that the structures and supports you create help shape how kids behave and act, right? And so it goes back to that idea of creating predictable systems. A lot of times, kids will act out because they don't feel safe, right? Because they don't feel supported. So first, I think it's good to like proactively add those things in, right? So like having a routine to your practice, so they know, like, when we get here, like, this is what we do first, this is what we do second. Like, like having an order to things, right, um, is incredibly helpful and proactively getting rid of some of those behaviors. Um, having a lot of, like, player-led um, type things, right? So it's not, like, there's kind of an order and a structure, but then within that, it's like, so, you know, we're always going to start with the warm-up first and, like, this is what the warm-up is, but then, like, Players are going to lead it, and they're going to rotate leading it. And, um, you know, so creating those systems and structures, um, I think, helps proactively. The the other thing is that I think in some respects, right, so you set those expectations. You make it incredibly clear what they are and what the consequences are. Um, and let's say you have a kid who's just, like, you know, throwing rocks at somebody. Yeah. So how you handle that is really important same consequence or same you know held to expectation right so if like you're being a bad teammate like you're gonna sit out like that's normally like i come from it one i don't like to make kids run or do physical activity as like a punishment yeah punishment or like lack of meeting expectations because then it's just associated with something bad yeah um like i come at it with the mindset of like kids are there because they want to play so like the best thing to do to hold them accountable is not let them play, right? But it's it's how you do that. So if I scream like, you know, like the hell out of here, go sit over there, that's like isolating, shaming, whatever. If I walk up, put my arm around a kid, say we're gonna go sit on the bench together, we're gonna have a talk, right? And just say like, listen, you know, I can't have you out there because right now it's not safe for everybody. So like, what's going on? You know, what are you doing? Like, how can we support you? I'm still holding that expectation. Everybody else sees them holding the line. If you're not being safe, if you're not being a good teammate, you're going to be out. Um, but how I do that is going to be different, or how a coach is doing that is going to be different individually. And I think it's important to know, you know, who your kids are, who you're coaching. Um, like for some kids, you can just be like, dude, 
go have a seat, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, for others, it might be like, come on, let's go. We're going to sit down for a little bit. We need to figure this out. Mm-hmm. You said something really important there, which is not to de-incentivize using uh, play, uh, activity because then they maybe grow up thinking oh running's a, a bad thing they associate with that bad thing or you did something wrong go to sit in your room for a while and then they associate their room with punishment um i guess that's something not a lot of people think about i'm curious does that come into other other facets of like like what are your thoughts on what not to use and what to use um i think it, it has to be like a natural thing right like it doesn't make sense um, let's say like you miss a, a ground ball in baseball and then like you have to run a lap, like there's no connection to missing a ground ball and running a lap, right? Yeah. Like, like running is not going to improve your ability to get the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think anytime that, that action and consequence to action are disconnected, it doesn't help kids learn the way that it should. Now, if you're, um, like if you're like being unsafe, like a natural reaction would be then to move you, remove you from the situation, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that might be like for a kid in a house, right? That might be going to the room because it's just, it's removing them until they have the time and space to calm down. I think framing it is important, right? If it's like, go to your room, because like you're in trouble and nobody wants to be around you that could create a negative connotation around it. If it's like you need some time to calm down and take a break and when you're ready to, you know, re-enter society in a calm and productive manner, like you're free to come out. Yeah. Right. And so I think same thing in sport, right? Like, hey, you're not meeting the expectation right now or you're not being supportive of your teammates. So like I'm gonna need you to step out of this. Mm-hmm. And when you're ready, like to re-enter in a way that meets the expectations. We'll check and talk, make sure you're there, and then you'll re-enter. Um, so I think off, also like leaving it somewhat open-ended to say, like we're gonna remove you from this situation right now because it's not safe for you or for someone else. Um, and when you feel like you're ready to come back, you let me know. Yeah. It gives, it still, it gives them the power, right? It's saying like, yeah, there's an expectation, and if you don't meet it, there's a consequence, but like, we're, you still have control in this situation. When you're ready, let me know. Mm-hmm. On the flip side of that, I'm sure the way that you incentivize also has a lot to do with how people progress in life. Like, say they, they won and they, everyone was a really good teammate and stuff, and then you're like, all right, let's go out for pizza, cake, ice cream, McDonald's or something. That would show them that unhealthy foods and stuff are a, are a benefit, and then when they get older and they can just buy at any time, they maybe develop an unhealthy relationship with that. So what do you think are good ways to promote things, just like social or? Yeah, so from a, just like from a general stance, really anything that you can do that's more internally satisfying than externally satisfying is gonna be a better way to promote it, right? So like um, rewarding by like promoting feelings of pride and success and joy and reinforcing like the fun of it, right? It's going to be, it's going to be more lasting anyway than like going to grab ice cream, right? So if like, if you like, you know, as a reward for whatever, like go and get ice cream, you know, that's, that's only going to last so long, right? Like at, at some point, like, 
the idea of going out and getting ice cream is no longer going to serve as a motivator, particularly if you can just like go out and buy it yourself yeah. as like kids get older. Um, and so promoting those things that are more internal in terms of like why they do it in the first place is going to make it more lasting and sustainable anyway. Um, now that said, particularly with kids, like I also think it's good to celebrate sometimes. And like sometimes it is good to go out for ice cream. Yeah. Maybe not McDonald's, never McDonald's. Um, <laughs> but certainly like, you know, there's times to celebrate too. Yeah, once that uh, motivation has been changed from say, so say you, you're teaching kids when you're leading their youth baseball team and you really intrinsically motivate them and then next year your legs injured you can't teach them and the, the guy's just extrinsically motivating them like yeah we got to ice cream every time and then you come back the following year and everyone's extrinsically motivated how would you is it possible to change that backward yeah i mean it is it's work um i think that it's um One of the things that, so I, I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction, but one of the things that I think should be your goal as a youth sport coach is that like the kid comes back and plays next year, right? Like, I think you've done a good job as a coach if your kids still want to play at the end of the year, mm -hmm. right? And that shows that you've really promoted more of like an internal sense of love for the game or the sport or whatever it is, right? If kids want to come back, that's like, you probably did something well. Um, if they're in a system where they're just like used to getting rewarded for everything, um, I think like it depends on the age, but young kids adapt pretty quickly. Right. So like the first couple of weeks there'd probably be like the, can we do this? Can we get this? Can we get that? And it, like after a while, like they'll just realize they can't okay. and like they'll stop asking. Um, but I also think that, you know, when they realize like, when, when you're reinforcing fun as like a motivator, right? Like who doesn't want that? Mm -hmm. All right, I like that. Um, it seems like every question I ask you have these super, you know, you've, you've well-researched the, the body of knowledge that you're kind of based on. I'm curious if you have any thoughts Sometimes like, when you ask me about, you know, things outside of my, yeah, but, but within, within your realm, do you have any questions that you don't have answers for that? You're like, just kind of pet thoughts that you're like, I wonder where this would go. And there just isn't the, the knowledge to support them yet. Uh, I think most of my questions, I don't really have answers to. I probably have a lot of ideas. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately in terms of where to go and where there's not a lot of research on, it kind of ties back to what you were asking about in the beginning. Um, and that's particularly related to schools, but thinking about trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive physical activity spaces, right? And so the big ones are physical education classes and recess. And so, you know, if we think about, you know, the um, data shows that trauma and adverse experiences in childhood are, are more prevalent than, like, any of us would have thought before, right? Like, it's everywhere. Um, and so how do we... How do we design a playground? How do we design a physical education curriculum that is supportive of the kid who's likely coming into that environment who's affected by trauma? Um, you know, I think traditionally, um, you know, those two spaces, I think, again, physical activity has huge benefits. Um, across multiple domains, right? For mental health, for social health, obviously there's physical health ramifications, right? And so like there's there's benefits to moving. Um, but you know, when we think about the kids who sit out, who don't move, um, oftentimes there are other factors going on. And 
And so like there's been, I think there's been some like um, a little bit of growing work around like physical education and um, like the LGBTQ youth community, right? And so like generally PE has not been like a warm and welcoming space um, for those individuals. And so how do we create it to where it is more sensitive to maybe like trauma or abuse or stereotypes that people have experienced? Um, you know, when I think about that for recess, you know, it's a lot of it, I think, is kind of what we're already thinking about in terms of what does a quality playground look like. I don't think that, um, like, oftentimes, if you think of what would be good for an individual affected by trauma, like, the answer is inevitably what would be good for everybody, right? It's not like you have to design something that's trauma-informed and then that takes away from everyone else. Really, like, what it does is just enhance everyone else's experience mm-hmm. um, is what I would argue, but it's, you know, like... How do we create an environment that's predictable and easy to manage? How do we create an environment where adults can be um, relational and allies for students? Um, how do we create an environment where social hierarchies don't dominate to where some are excluded and some are given all of the privilege? And so um, thinking about that um, has been you know, the past um, past a little bit just kind of diving into the literature to think about what we know about biology and physiology and environments and different interventions in other spaces and how might we transform that into one in which we put it into a recess context a PE context a U sport context because at the end of the day you know in probably 99% of schools and 99% of youth sport leagues, you're gonna have kids who are affected by trauma. And so how do we create an environment that will allow them to thrive rather than like constantly pushing them down? Yeah, and so so this is pretty downstream. Have you thought of any upstream approaches for how to create a world where trauma in youth is less prevalent? Um, it's above my pay grade, Tiger. <laughs> um, you know, I think as long as we have a world in which humans exist in it, like we're going to have a world that is broken with problems. And, um, you know, certainly there's larger societal systematic efforts that probably need to take place around wealth disparities and income inequality and education disparities and inequalities and health disparities and inequalities. Um, Something really interesting I heard about that from uh, Professor Godsad, a evolutionary biologist, was um, he asked me, he was like, what do you think is the primary indicator of abuse in a house, childhood abuse in a household? And you'd obviously think it would be uh, socioeconomic stress, right? Just financial troubles would kind of spur it, but it's actually having a uh, step-parent step in the household. Hmm. Um, and I mean, you obviously can't change that. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, I mean, just you can't even no unpack thoughts. that. No thoughts. All right, um, did I miss anything on, um, I kind of a while ago I prompted you if you had, if you had any thoughts or, or things you want said? No, I don't think so. Cool, all right, I, pr- I appreciate your time. Thank you and looking forward to hearing your talk on the, the what are you doing with the DC thing? Oh, in a couple of weeks recording for um, the National Parent Teacher Association, um, talking about holistic education, particularly how recess can be a place of social development or as we discussed, a place of non-social development. Yeah, creating good morals and, and setting people up to be better members of society. Sure, yeah. All right, I appreciate it. If, uh, if you liked it, like, subscribe, uh, find them on Twitter <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, I appreciate your time. All right, thanks, Tiger. Thanks.